2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The historian's most important maneuver is often not showing how different the past was, but rather how much continuity exists between eras that seem far apart. But what about the American disjuncture, the end of the Civil War and with it the institution of slavery? Could there really be continuity in black communities before and after the end of something that big? UC Berkeley historian, Dylan Penningroth, Answers with a resounding yes in a new book, Before the Movement, which rewrites what feel like established facts about how slavery worked and cherished notions about the civil rights movement. Penningroth joins us in the studio after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Dylan Penningroth's new book, Before the Movement, rests on a different kind of information from many other books about African-American history. It's not reliant on black or white elites' account, nor on the oral histories of enslaved people. Instead, Penningroth's research over the last nearly 20 years has resulted in a database of county court cases in which black people brought the kinds of cases that everyone brings to county court. Contract disputes, divorces, the stuff of everyday life. This different evidence base leads Penningroth to some startling conclusions about the way black history has been told. Let me quote here. The notion of black history as a freedom struggle has also cost us something. It has helped make black history almost synonymous with the history of race relations, as if black lives only matter when white people are somehow in the picture. It has laid a moral burden on African-American history that few other scholarly fields must carry urging us to judge our ancestors according to how well they advanced the freedom struggle. It has often infused a subtle romanticism into African-American history with Black people playing the role of humble folk heroes, overcoming adversity against the odds, or fugitives defined by a common history of dispossession and yearning for freedom. Most of all, it has shrunk our vision of Black life down to the few areas of Black life where federal law and social movements made a difference. This book, then... Is an attempt to recover the vastness of black life, recentering ordinary people living with and against the grain of history. And the aggregate of so many lives being retrieved from the past is an extraordinary achievement. Dylan Penningroth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, your interest in the story of how black people use the law has its roots in your own family history. Can you tell us a little bit about
0: it? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, like probably most of your audience. I grew up hearing a lot of family stories. Um, My New Jersey family, they all came from Virginia, Southside Virginia, and I always heard about a place called Cumberland County. Uh, And I actually went to Cumberland County when I was five years old for the funeral of my great-great-uncle Thomas Holcomb. Mm -hmm. And when I was older, I heard an audio tape that another one of my uncles had made of him And it told a story that I had heard before, but I hadn't quite heard it that way. And it was about how Thomas Holcomb's father, Jackson Holcomb, who was a slave, owned a boat and how he used that boat in the closing days of the Civil War to ferry Confederate soldiers across the Appomattox River. And when they got to the other side, they paid him. And I thought, that's strange. Why why would they do that? Well, and
2: to unspin a little bit, why... Confederate soldiers paying
0: a slave would be such a surprise given the way the history has been told. So one thing that we know about slavery is that slaves did not have rights. That's something that all the law treatises tell us, and it's true. They didn't have rights. But what we don't really think as much about is the privileges of slavery. And that sounds like an oxymoron. It's kind of a weird thing to say. But in fact, in the 1800s, the word privileges actually meant something in law. It's actually in the Constitution, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution. It's actually getting at something that's really big for white people, for, for people who actually are citizens. And slaves had certain privileges. One of them was the privilege of owning property, like a boat, and to make deals with white people, hmm. such as a promise to fare you across the river in return for some money. Yeah. So how were rights and privileges different? At the most basic level, a right is something that you can go to court and get protected. It's something that a judge can say, you have this right, and if someone violates that right, then they have to pay. A privilege can be violated without any repercussions from a court. But that doesn't mean that there aren't repercussions for people abridging your privileges. And we see that again and again in the history of slavery. Yeah. So before we go uh, deeper into the conversation, you have a really
2: interesting note in the book about how you use the term, you know, slave versus, you know, enslaved person. There's been a lot of debate about that, you know, both in the history as a field as well as kind of more more popularly. Um, Talk to us about how you
0: kind of decided to to use these terms. So there is a debate among historians, and I think in the wider public about whether the word slave dehumanizes the people that we're talking about, um, that it robs them of their agency, and that the job of the historian, among other things, is to give people back their agency who can't speak for themselves anymore and who were subordinated and rendered voiceless in the past. I happen to think differently. I don't think that we historians can actually restore agency to the enslaved of the past, in part because <clears throat> they always were human. They, they, the, the way that slavery made money was by exploiting slaves' humanity. They were valuable precisely because they were thinking, acting human beings. And so I decided that I wasn't going to, you know, <clears throat> construct elaborate sentences to get around the word slave. And so sometimes I use the word enslaved person or enslaver. But if it makes sense in a sentence, I will go ahead and use the word slave. Yeah. So let's talk a
2: little bit about the way that, but you know, before the Civil War, when the institution of slavery is strong, how did free and enslaved black pe- people use the law to assert, you know, to, to use the law? How did they use the
0: law? Yeah. So free people is actually a really interesting <clears throat> question so enslaved people and free people they're often related to each other, they live in the same communities um, <clears throat> but free people are using law in many of the same ways that white people do. so free people before the Civil War have many rights, but they don't have all the rights that white people have they look at that situation, they think, well, we have the right to make contracts, we have the right to own property. Slaves don't. They only have privileges in that regard. Free people also have the right to make corporations, and that's one of the first things that they do is they start to found these associations, colored people's conventions. And these are kind of the forerunners of the civil rights organizations that we know today, like the NAACP or even Black Lives Matter. They incorporate, they're using corporation law. This goes back to the 1820s and 1830s. So free people are using all these legal tools. And when emancipation comes, the 4 million enslaved people who become free people, they begin to use law in much the same way that free people of color did before the Civil War. But the key thing to remember is that when we talk about civil rights, they're not the civil rights that we're thinking of today. They're really just this limited basket of rights, property, contract, the right to make associations, and the right to go to court and defend those rights. So there were within this broader field of rights, right? There were kind of three
2: different types, right? So there's the, this narrow band that you're talking about, which were called civil rights at the
0: time. What are what are the other It's The political and social. So that's right. There are these historians have figured out that in the 19th century, Americans generally thought of rights as existing in kind of three baskets. So one is civil rights, and those are the ones that I just described. The second one is political rights, the right to vote. The right to hold office. And then the third basket is really, in a sense, everything else. <laughs> and so it means what that means is that <clears throat> that social rights is kind of a flexible category. And that makes it really useful for politicians, especially racist right-wing politicians, who will then use it to pursue their own political ambitions by saying if you give african americans say the right to vote then the next thing you know they'll be wanting to sleep with your daughters and so social rights just becomes this catch-all category that's politically useful and kind of explosive for civil rights activists to pursue and one of the things that uh, that Poli- smart progressive politicians try to do is they try to say, okay, we're not talking about social rights. We're only talking about civil rights. And that, in fact, is the political move, the brilliant move that the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln makes.
2: Where did the kind of folk version that I understand, you know, kind of civil rights of, you know, when we say like the civil rights movement, like where did that get forged, like that new definition of what civil rights are?
0: So that gets forged slowly. So it bursts onto the scene, I think, in earnest in the 1960s. But really, the seeds of it get planted all the way back in the 1820s and 30s with these colored conventions. Because, again, one of the things that they're doing is they're saying that because we are denied the right to vote because we're discriminated against in the social sphere. Like we can't sit next to white people in the theater. We can't go in streetcars because we don't have equal rights in all spheres of life. Therefore we are what they call slaves of the community. Hmm. We're subject to civil slavery. And so that, that's a rhetorical move. Um, and, What they're doing here is they're trying to divide the world into two categories. There are free people, there's enslaved people. There's freedom and there's slavery. Freedom means having all the rights that everyone else has, equal Mm -hmm. rights. Mm -hmm. Anything short of that is slavery. That argument kind of gets revived from time to time. And you can actually see echoes of it in the rhetoric of the activists of the 1960s. Huh. But you think that goes all the way back to sort of the pre-Civil War abolitionists? Yeah. I think it does. When, when we talk today about second-class citizenship, in a way, we're kind of harking back to that very old idea that people like Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett are saying, that if we do not have all the rights that white people have, white men, I should say, mm-hmm. then we are slaves. And they actually say this in their newspapers. Yeah. We're talking with UC Berkeley historian Dylan Penningroth
2: about his new book, Before the Movement, The history, Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. Penningroth spent years pouring through county courthouse records from lawsuits to deeds, wills, marriage records, divorce decrees, to understand how everyday black Americans leveraged the law to enforce their rights love to hear from you do you have questions for dylan penningroth about this research you can give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or you can find us on all the different social things at kqed forum i'm alexis madrigal more after the break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by UC Berkeley historian Dylan Penningroth. We're talking about his new book, Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. Um, Dylan, a lot of the research for this book took place in some dank basement courthouses, it <laughs> seems like. Um, maybe tell us about one of the courthouses, Coahoma County, maybe, Clarksdale, Mississippi.
0: Sure. Uh, Coahoma County is one of mm, a couple of dozen courthouses that I went to to do research. And, <clears throat> you know, normally when you're a historian, you go to an archive. Right. It, you know, it, it might be in the state capital. It might be in a city. Uh, and and they're set up for you. They, their job is to serve you records about history and help you sort of figure out, you know, where the stuff is that you want to look at. A county courthouse is a county courthouse. Their job is to process traffic tickets uh, (laughs) and and maybe help, you know, the local lawyers look up land deeds. So they're, you know, they're not expecting you and, you know, they're busy. So what I would do is I would, you know, I'd hop in the car and I'd drive south on I-57 from Chicago and, you know, I'd end up, you know, six or 12 hours later in southern Illinois or central Mississippi. And so, you know, I would go... Early in the morning to the county courthouse, which is usually in the center of the county, Clarksdale, little town in the Mississippi Delta, um, home of the blues. Morgan Freeman actually had a restaurant there for a while. Uh, and, And I would go there and I would call ahead to see whether the records that I wanted might still be there. And they would typically say, maybe, I think so. And when I got there, I would sort of explain what I was doing. And if I was really lucky, they would say, well... There's the back room. Have at it. Yeah. And that's, in essence, what happened in Oklahoma. The, <clears throat> the, the county clerk um, was extraordinarily nice. Um, and Carolyn Parham now, who was then the deputy clerk and is now the clerk, they helped me uh, find my way through that back storeroom and find what I wanted. Because basically what you're looking
2: for at first are dockets, right? You just want the names of people who brought cases, because then you're going to take those, and what do you do
0: with them? So the dockets are sort of a diary of the court. <clears> they're <throat> they they they're these big cloth-bound volumes. I mean, oversized volumes. They, gosh, they must weigh maybe 10 pounds, 12 pounds each. And so when, you know, when I would haul down three or four of them at a time. You know, they make some noise when they hit the countertop. And so on the dockets, what they're doing is they're listing out the cases that the court heard. And what they write is the name of the plaintiff and the defendant. They might write the nature of the suit, like this is a divorce or this is a land case or an accident case. They'll write the dates, you know, the date that it was filed and then the various motions in the case. One thing that they do not write, and this was a surprise to me, mm-hmm. is they don't write down race. so and that's true uh,
2: like all the way, right? I mean, that's true even in like jim the Jim Crow South. you know, if you've got a case, you you would have to go try and track down independently the race of the the litigants.
0: It's absolutely right. They stopped marking race in eighteen sixty five even in the deep south. before eighteen sixty five, they would typically say whether the person was an enslaved person or a free person of color. After 1865, they just stopped doing it. And I think it's because those categories don't matter anymore legally. Obviously, they matter a lot outside the courthouse and inside the courthouse as well. But as a matter of law, there isn't really a a cause of action called the Negro law of property, right? Like you can't sue in Negro property or Negro torts. You sue in property, right? Like you sue, uh, you know, for breach of contract. You don't sue for Negro breach of contract because there's no such thing. And if you are in court, you have to adhere to the law. You can only make arguments that the law will allow.
2: Hmm. So how do, you know, just ordinary Black people kind of deal with this situation in which, you know, I I know legal fiction has a more technical definition, but as a legal fiction, their race doesn't matter.
0: But in the real world, their race really matters. So how do they deal with that? They deal with it in a lot of different ways. So, okay, the clerks are not marking race on the dockets. So there's this whole story that I can tell you about how I figured out what race people were. But the way that people negotiated, the way that they dealt with it, in an actual case, was tactically. Hmm. So each person involved in a court case has a certain goal. Like the plaintiff wants to win, the defendant wants to win, the lawyers want to win because that's how they're going to get paid. The judges have a different set of uh, needs. You know, they, they want to get through their docket quickly. If it gets appealed, like to the state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, they have another set of considerations which involve whether they want the case decision to apply broadly or narrowly. Hmm. So each one of those players in the case has certain interests which might be advanced or hindered Hmm. by mentioning race. So sometimes you see the lawyers for a black person actually putting race into the record because they think that it's going to gain them an advantage in court. So often what they do is they'll play on a stereotype of black ignorance and black helplessness. And I call it the the ignorant negro trope. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you have a black person and you're claiming that that black person was defrauded or cheated or exploited or pressured into signing a contract that he shouldn't have signed, and that it's very bad for him to have signed. So you need to get him out of this contract. In the law, there are various defenses that you can use. They're not connected to race. There's no such thing as in law as Mm -hmm. sort of a Negro law of contract, again. But what you can do as a lawyer in Coalhoma County, Mississippi in 1910 is you can say, look, my client was pressured into this contract by this powerful white man because he is an ignorant Negro. And they use that again and again, and it works. Wow. You know, there is a,
2: a, an aspect of your book that looks at the way that black people used property rights. And maybe even like more importantly, that white people continued to respect property rights even in a time where we know that there was like tremendous racial violence, that lynching is on the rise, like through all of these different periods, not just like in reconstruction right after the civil war, but post reconstruction, you know, reactionary South white people continue to respect the property rights of black people, at least in some cases, like explain that to us. Like, why, why is that?
0: That's a great question. At the broadest kind of theoretical level the answer is that property law is really conservative. It doesn't change very fast. It's, you know, most of the principles are hundreds of years old. In practical terms, kind of think back, <clears throat> if, you, if you own a house or if you bought a house, um, think back to the moment where you signed the papers, right? So you're sitting in the office of Chicago Chicago title title, company, right? And, And there's a bunch of people around the table and you're being asked to sign a whole stack of papers and everybody's making small talk and they're waiting for you to sign this and that and the other thing. And you kind of know what's going on, but really what you know is the big picture. What that moment is about is about creating a record of the transaction so that people will be on notice that you own the house, that the bank has a mortgage on the house, that the bank will need to get paid first if anything happens to the house, right? All of this is creating a public record. It's putting the world on notice that this thing happened. You bought this house, you now own it. It's putting the world on notice specifically that you are now in what's called the chain of title. So you now have title to the, to the property and you are taking it from the, the seller And then someday you're going to sell it. You're going to convey it to someone else. Maybe you'll convey it by will to your children Mm -hmm. um, or to a spouse. And all of that has to be put on record. The chain of title is really important because if there's a break in the chain of title, well, that's what Chicago title company is for. (laughs) They're there to insure it, to make sure that if that happens, they're going to back it up and they'll spend the money to fix the break in the chain of title. Once black people are freed, once they begin to acquire property, and that in itself is an incredible story of blood, sweat, and tears, the way that they manage to save up money through hard work to get property. But as the more they get property, the more they are, in essence, entering into the chain of title. And at one end of the chain is a whole bunch of white people And at the other end is potentially more white people. In other words, white people have an interest in protecting black people's civil right of property. Because if they don't, then anyone who that black person conveys the property to in the future can't be sure that he has a clear title. The property could be worthless. Could be devalued, right. Could be devalued, exactly. So
2: interesting. Um, You know, one of our listeners writes in to say, you know, I actually work with Professor Penningroth. I'd love to know more about the research process. And if he worked with the community for his book, did the towns and communities provide more, more depth to this work? And it's kind of a fascinating, um, particularly around like black land ownership. And were you able to find different communities where people said like, oh, this,
0: like this, where they provided insight into how these things worked? I think probably the 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 community that i got the most insight into this was my own family uh, i went and uh, i don't know if i would call them interviews i i talked a lot <laughs> with my uncle henry henry smith um in cumberland virginia and and his wife margaret smith and you know he told told me stories essentially i think that's often how research happens when you're talking to people about a subject like this he told me stories and i I listened, you know, sometimes I took notes, but it really helped me fill in things that I couldn't get from the court records. And the court records can tell you a lot. They can be really intimate and emotional. But there are a lot of things that they can't tell you. So often I would get, you know, the backstory from him. I had other stories that I got from relatives in South Orange, New Jersey, in particular about the church that uh, my great-uncle Tom And other members of my family, including my mother, worshipped that. And so those are sort of some of the things that helped me not only fill in gaps, but guide the questions that I was asking in the first place. Helped me figure out how to read the court records that I was reading and maybe even which records to look at most closely.
2: Um, You know, another listener, Jay, writes in to say, My great-great-grandfather, Daniel Alexander, was a slave owned by Thomas Freeman McKinney, a leading member of the Austin colony. His is the story of an interracial marriage between a black male slave and a white female indentured servant who lived together during slavery and raised their family on property they owned. After emancipation, they are listed as man and wife in Austin City directories. The family still owns and works the property. McKinney was a co-founder of Galveston. Daniel uh, also founded the now-defunct town of Pilot Knob. This person knows their ancestry.com right here. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for that, Jay. And, I, and I, I there's a couple different questions that come out of this uh, this comment. One is maybe you can talk about this kind of vibrant history of land ownership that happens all across the South, right? And I think that yeah, the number, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of property. I can't remember the exact number of it. 15 million acres 15 by million 1910. Acres. Yeah, 15 million acres by 1910. And this is occurring exactly at the time in which we – feel like black rights are actually being stripped away by this kind of violent
0: Southern insurgency. That's right. It's, it's one of the strangest uh, things in American history and maybe one of the most underappreciated. You know, exactly at the moment when black rights are being stripped away, it, Reconstruction is actually this moment where black people achieve incredible political power, especially in the South. You know, the governor of Mississippi is a black man. Mm -hmm. Um, And what Jim Crow really is about, it's a Mm counter-revolution. It's kind of a backlash politics against black political power, economic power, um, and this, again, this catch-all phrase, social equality, social rights. That's what Jim Crow is about. And so that's all happening at the same time when black people are steadily, painfully acquiring land, they're acquiring all sorts of property. But the rise of the black farmer in the South is one of the most dramatic stories in American history. Because right, we then think the sharecropping, fall. right, exactly. is the way that people tend to think
2: of this. But that's, you, you found that that's not the only thing
0: that was going on. Absolutely. The, the Sharecropping is an incredibly important story, too. It's also a very legal story, because after all, a sharecrop is a kind of contract. And so there are a lot of battles get that, that get fought about the sharecropping contract. But then there's this whole story about black farm owners, black homeowners in cities and suburbs. And that's incredibly important you know, for a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of them is that they spend a lot of time dealing with law, property Mm -hmm. law, Mm -hmm. land law, fence law, um, livestock law. There there are all sorts of things. And they learn it and they become quite savvy about it. Enslaved people were also savvy about law, different aspects of law. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important to appreciate and I think often gets covered up Is that african americans have always thought about law always talked about Hmm. law always engaged with law and this idea that black people you know were alienated from law i think really Hmm. doesn't do justice to what was really going on in the united states and you have this great uh phrase uh goat
2: sense (laughs) right um and One of the one of the cases that you make is essentially that newspapers were talking about law. Black newspapers were talking about law with everyday people about all the things that the ways that they could be using the law, even in these kind of racist structures.
0: Black newspapers going back to 1827 were talking about law. Often they were telling lawyer jokes You know Frederick Douglass founds you know Freedom's Journal in 1827, and I think in one of the very first issues, he's rocking lawyer jokes. You know, Uh, and you know some of these are reprinted, but the point is that people are really engaged with the world of law, and that continues straight through. Black churches are, are trying to teach their congregations about law. They hold meetings, board meetings. The reason that black churches and other organizations are so interested in having members learn about law, there are a couple of reasons. One is they want they think that property is going to be a way to uplift the race. (laughs) Right. If we can, you know, if if we can gain enough property We can get the railroad to take the Jim Crow car off the road. Like that's what they think. It's this this idea of black uplift through achievement, and that's really important. And of course, it still exists today. But then the other reason that they emphasize law to their members and why they're so didactic, teaching people about law, is because churches are themselves creatures of law. They're corporations and associations. And they have the power to govern themselves, which means that they have their own bylaws. They have articles of incorporation. They have constitutions. Each church has a constitution. And those are legal documents that if something happens, if the church falls into a dispute, the judge will look at it and and enforce that. Article of incorporation, those bylaws, as the church has written it. And so they really need members to understand how law works. We're talking with UC Berkeley historian Dylan Penningroth about
2: his new book, Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. Penningroth spent years pouring through county courthouse records, lawsuits, deeds, wills, marriage records, divorce decrees, to understand how everyday black Americans leverage the law to enforce their rights. Penningroth is a professor of law and history at UC Berkeley, also a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, if you've got questions for Dylan Penningroth, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can use the email, of course, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with UC Berkeley historian Dylan Penningroth. who's professor of law and history at UC Berkeley and associate dean of the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program. He's got a new book. It's called Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. You know, before the break, we were talking about the, the ways that black churches were corporations and that there's a variety of other corporations that are sort of part of black life. Um, When we look at things like voting rights, you have an incredibly evocative description of why it was that black associations turned out in force around uh, voting. Maybe talk to us a little bit about about that.
0: Sure. So there there are a number of different organizations that mobilized in the early 1960s and actually in the mid-1950s to try to Bring voting rights to African-Americans. You know, this is a time when only a handful of black people in certain counties in the Deep South were actually registered to vote and everyone else was just afraid to approach the courthouse to vote. And so what these organizations do is they uh, they, they go out in the countryside and they try to talk to people and teach them how to vote, how to register to vote. One of the organizations that does that is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Mm -hmm. Committee, which is Mm -hmm. SNCC. And so they fan out across the countryside and, you know, they do what they do. And, you know, John Lewis and other members, uh, you know, one of the things that they say is they sometimes express frustration with SNCC's, what they perceive as SNCC's disorganization. Mm. And in particular, what they say is that SNCC's model of organizing is built around this idea of radical democracy. People often say within SNCC, you know, we're not, uh, we're not a corporation, we're not an organization, we're a movement. Mm-hmm. And so they don't, they, they want ordinary people to, to drive the movement, and they really believe in that vision of radical democracy. SNCC lasts about seven years. It does incredible work in that time, but it really mm-hmm. kind of falls apart relatively quickly. Contrast that with the Montgomery Improvement Association, which is uh, a corporation Mm -hmm. which incorporates about five or six months into the Montgomery bus boycott. And they incorporate so that they can have the powers that the law awards to a corporation to channel resources toward a particular goal. Mm -hmm. So there's a president, there's a board of directors, and... You know, the vision for that organization is going to be agreed on and then acted on by the president and directed from the top. Mm -hmm. You know, the MIA still exists today. And, you know, more importantly, it managed to orchestrate a bus boycott for 387 days, longer than anyone, even they, thought could be remotely possible under enormous pressure from white supremacists who were doing all sorts of things to keep them from achieving their goal. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that they were able to last so long under all that pressure is that they decided to form a corporation. They had some structure. So
2: let's, we're going to spin it forward in a second, but let's spin back to, you know, post-Reconstruction, right, there were associations that also Functioned kind of like almost like a military operation to try and protect black people who were voting too, right? Yeah.
0: There are all sorts of associations that get founded during Reconstruction. It's like this incredible blossoming. There are unions. Uh, there's an incredible washerwoman's union that the historian Tara Hunter uh, has talked about, where they're organizing to protect their laundry business against the white people of Atlanta who want to cut prices. And then there are these other kinds of associations that they're kind of like early voting rights associations. Mm. Um, So you think about 1866 in the Deep South, or sorry, 1868, 69, 70, 71, black people are just beginning to exercise the right to vote. And white people are not, they're not down with that, uh, many of them. And the white people turn out in force and they're armed. They form these paramilitary organizations. Black people try to do the same thing. So months before voting day, they start to organize. And in particular, they start to gather weapons and they drill like military organizations. And then what's fascinating is some of them try to get a charter of incorporation from the state. They write to the governor, the legislature of the state of South Carolina, and they try to get a charter from the state. The reason they do that is because they want to be on the correct side of the law. They know that if you're just a bunch of guys out in a field drilling with rifles or muskets or swords, and and violence ensues, you could be classified as an outlaw and charged with crimes. If you have a charter of incorporation from the state... Say as the South Carolina militia, then what you do if violence ensues, you essentially have a charter from the state saying that you have a right to organize that way, and so they try to get that
2: huh, so, so taking these different examples you know one from the kind of reconstruction era, one from you know kind of what we think of as the classic civil rights um, time 50s 60s, what do you think that says about organizing today like I at least my perception in the Bay Area is that SNCC style kind of quote unquote leaderless or kind of more group or uh based organizing is more popular than a more structured uh hierarchical kind of setting um do you do you think there are these lessons can be extracted from this history or do you think that that's overreading <laughs> the history
0: well I I'm a historian, so I I, I can't claim <laughs> any expertise in community organizing. But you know, I think there are lessons to be learned. It's not so much that one is better than the other; it's that there are trade-offs. You know, if you if you go with that corporate structure, you're losing certain things potentially. You you may lose that dynamic access to the you know the the desires of the community that you represent. You know you know, leaders of these organizations, they always need to say and and actually do to represent the will of the community. Um, and so there's a cost to incorporating. On the other hand, if you, you know, if you go with the radical democracy idea, somebody still has to Sign contracts, uh, you know, for, you know, the moving trucks. Somebody has to sign a lease for your community uh, organization's headquarters. You need to deal with employment law. Um, You got to pay taxes. All of these things matter. And, you know, having a, a corporation is incredibly useful to manage those sorts of things. And you can play that down. But I think maybe, I guess if there's one takeaway, it might be to just acknowledge a bit more that that is a necessary component of organizing and maybe to lift it up a bit.
2: Yeah. And also one that seems incredibly well-grounded in, you know, Black history. It's not yeah. like you're, it's not, not outside the tradition. Exactly. Um, we have talked recently on the show and we talk about it more later this week, um, different efforts at reparation. And I wonder what you think the kind of ordinary kind of practice of law by black Americans has to say or brings to those, uh, brings to those discussions about, you know, reparation for specific harms or just kind of more
0: broad uh, discrimination. Yeah, the reparations debate is an It's a fascinating one and really complicated. Uh, You know, I suppose that one thing that the history of black property ownership in particular can bring to the table is a more specific idea of what was lost Hmm. when white people violated black people's property rights. Um, Often the stumbling block with debates about reparations is putting a dollar figure on stuff, right? Like how can you compensate for slavery? You know, slavery is seen as this institution that robbed people of something that was of infinite value. How can you put a price Mm. tag on freedom? And so right off the bat, you're running into an almost insurmountable problem. If you can show specific properties with specific values and and that they were taken from certain people, you know, then then you've actually got kind of a legal claim as, a, as well as a moral claim. Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: You
2: know, I mean, I think one of the things that's been really difficult, like I think about um, when we had neighborhoods in which eminent domain was used a lot um, to foreclose on, on properties and build new infrastructure, you know, the, the highways or some of these other things. There's this sort of individual losses that happen for individual families. Many of those homes were actually owned by white people, though. Um, so it was like a, it's like slightly different. They were black neighborhoods, but many many white landowners. But there's the community harms, too. And so how do, how do those get brought into a court of law? Is there any tradition to draw
0: on from, from this book? there is a little bit um so the idea of the idea that a property it has value beyond its commodity value right like you, you you can value a property in different sorts of ways there's dollars and cents what can you get for it on the open market and that's that's a method that judges had been using for a long time, but they really went kind of whole hog on that starting in the 1950s. And that actually drives a lot of the black land loss that we see. So we talked earlier about the 15 million mm-hmm. acres. There are a lot of reasons why that number goes way down. It's just a few million acres now after the, uh, after the 1920s. But one of the reasons is that judges start treating land as if it's just a commodity, that it doesn't have any larger meaning. That actually, in American law, is something that stands alongside a tradition that is equally old, which is where judges look at a piece of property and say, no, that property has a larger value, sort of a communal value, a familial value. Mm -hmm. Um, They call it a propriety. And so... Black people actually benefit from this for quite a long time. And it's really when judges switch over to this commodity value idea Mm -hmm. that they start really losing land through what's known as partition sales. Wow. So interesting. And the partition sales are between families, or they're going outside of families, or what's happening there? So they can happen uh, between family members, going outside family members. Basically what it is is a situation where you have a whole bunch of people who are all descended from the person who originally acquired the land. So you have like a great-grandfather, and then that person didn't make a will. Mm. And so by state law, whether you're white, black, or anything else, that that property passes down in equal shares to all the sons, daughters, and then to their daughters and sons. And so everybody owns a piece of the property, but not a specific piece of the land. They own shares kind of in this collective Uh, thing. So they become, in a sense, kind of like a family corporation. And so what happens is, Uh, You know, if one person can be induced to sell, say your third cousin who lives in Cleveland, (laughs) you know, some white person might go and say, hey, do you want to sell that your share of the land in South Carolina? And he says, sure. I haven't seen those people in 40 years. And then he does it. And then it turns out that that land, you know, becomes sort of the wedge that this white property developer is going to use to break up the whole thing, get a judge to order a partition sale. Because he has then has the right to do that, and then it winds up being a multi million dollar golf course. Right,
2: right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, I you know I wanted to focus in. You know, we've been we've been talking about like making these eras. You know, uh, before the Civil War, when you know slavery still an institution and, and Jim Crow, we've been kind of adding complexity to the options that were available to Black people during those times. Um, but I also wanted to give you a chance to. Just note, obviously, that doesn't cancel out, you know, the extreme harms that were occurring during that time and even how they ended up intersecting with these legal rights that were able to be exercised.
0: No, that's absolutely right. And it's one of the difficult things that I think all scholars who write on African-American history, Native American history, uh, you know, the history of subordinated peoples, we all have to grapple with this because on the one hand, we want to talk about what people did besides be victims uh, it, we want to show that they had agency show what they did to shape their own lives but then again we also don't want to minimize the the dangers that they faced and the forces that they were squared up against and so you know I'm constantly trying to strike that balance one of the things that I do over and over again is I try to think about how they're viewing law from their perspective in other words I'm not primarily interested in how their actions in 1920 or 1930 advance something called a freedom struggle. Because in part, I don't think that the freedom struggle is really on people's minds all the time mm-hmm. in 1920 or 1930. Um, and in part because if you think of Black history as a freedom struggle, it has a tendency to draw your your eyes away from aspects of black life that I think mattered Hmm. as much or even more than a freedom struggle. And those aspects of life often had to do with their relationships with other black people. Hmm. So wives and husbands, parents and children, ministers and members, all of those are relationships. And there are stories embedded in those that are really important and have to be told.
2: You know, I think over the last, let's call it, 15 years, the idea that there is a moral arc and that it's been bending towards freedom has kind of fallen away. Is there something to replace that? <laughs> and, and is it a loss? You know, is that is that narrative a useful thing for people in living their lives?
0: I think that the idea <clears throat> of a freedom struggle or a long arc to African-American history that bends toward justice It's an incredibly powerful idea. It it lends itself really well to organizing. Um, And I wouldn't want to lose that. I think, though, that there are those costs that I mentioned a bit ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are also opportunities because when we turn our eyes, not, not to lose sight of the freedom struggle, to keep it front and center, but then also to look as closely as we can at Black people's relationships with each other and at their legal common sense. I think that, in a sense, it kind of connects us to our own history as human beings, as people, people who are, you know, not living these lives as heroes or villains, people who are undermining the freedom struggle or building it up. Mm-hmm. It, it's more kind of relatable, I think. Yeah.
2: I think that really comes across in your discussion of what, like, Black loring was like, you know, just what was it to be a black lawyer in 1905? And it was to have a little shop and help people with their wills. And yeah, maybe at some point in your career, you might get some quote unquote civil rights type case, something that, you know, advances the race. But but basically it was just trying
0: to survive as a small business person. That's exactly right. Black lawyers, like all lawyers, they're essentially kind of small business people and they need to make money. You know, (laughs) They, they may believe certain things, but they have to set those beliefs sort of at the door when they take a case. Yeah. So the black lawyer story is one aspect of it, and it's incredible. Yeah. They build their idea of civil rights out of that. But there's another story about white lawyers, many of whom are very racist, and why do they take black clients? Right. And that's just... They, needed, they wanted the money. They wanted the money, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
2: We've been talking with UC Berkeley historian Dylan Penningroth about his new book, Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. It's an incredible reframe of black history, so thoughtful on my list for Pulitzer Prize material. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've been talking with Dylan Penningroth, Associate Dean of the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program and a Professor of Law and History at UC Berkeley. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.